I have the honour of sitting with Gayburn, one of the legends of Irish broadcasting from every respect, both radio and television. Thank you for coming and chatting with me, Gay. It's a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you and to your listeners, indeed. Gay, broadcasting, you got involved relatively young in life and you've had a long career. What got you into broadcasting? Because you didn't start out. You were, you, yeah. Well, I think I realized when I was 14 or 15 years of age that I wanted to be in broadcasting somewhere for the very simple reason that my older brother, long since gone, departed was very interested in broadcasting and his close pal in Sink Street School was a fellow called Eamon Andrews mm -hmm. and Eamon Andrews had become, had started out broadcasting in, on the old Radio Erin and Eamon Andrews was a frequent visitor to our house on the South Circular Road and was a great pal of my mother, she was very fond of him and he of her and he regularly came and he was my hero and so I wanted to be like Eamon Andrews and I wanted to be on the wireless and I didn't quite know why or how I wanted to do it, but we knew nothing, of course, about television. Television was non-existent for us at that time. We had heard rumours that there was a thing in America where you turned on a switch and it was like a radio thing, except there was a screen on it and live people came up. But we had no way of imagining how that could possibly be. So it was just radio we were interested in. And I got interested at about 14 or 15, and then I started getting interested in, it must have been an instinctive thing, in doing a bit of debating and joining a drama group. And I was involved in drama. I, I was only recently in Stratford-upon-Avon to see the Royal Shakespeare Company doing three plays, one of which was Julius Caesar. And I remembered stage managing Julius Caesar around Ireland on one occasion when I was 18 or 19 with the Dublin Shakespeare Society. It was on the syllabus for the school at that time. And I stage managed it. And my brother Al, my older brother Al, uh, was Brutus, and a young fledgling T.P. McKenna was Cassius. So I was familiar with that. But anyway, getting back to, I was in the Shakespeare Society. I was in a group called the, the Dublin Arts Group. Uh, I was in the National Arts Theatre. Things like that all connected with, with getting up on stage and doing something. And I quickly realized I didn't want to be an actor. Uh, and I didn't want to be a comedian, but uh, I started emceeing concerts, and most of the concerts in Dublin, there were concerts in halls all over Dublin at that time, on a Sunday night particularly, almost all of which were in aid of the local church building fund, or the repair fund, or some fund, and so there were about six or seven different halls which had Sunday night concerts, and that, that was where I... I, I got stage struck and it was MC and so on and then gradually I got more interested in radio and the first time I was on radio was with my in my primary school in, in Denor Avenue before I went to Sing Street and we did a little play on Children's Hour and, and that was it and that sealed my fate I think and I decided that's what I wanted to do. It's one thing deciding that's what you want to do but given that RTE was the national broadcaster at that time and there were no alternatives to be able to take a dream and to turn it into a reality would not have been as easy as it may be today. No, it wasn't. There was only one radio station, the National Broadcaster, and that was it, and it was a type of the station, and there was a certain type who was acceptable to the old radio air, and a certain type who wasn't. And I would have been one of the people who wasn't, because I was not a Gaelic or I was not a literary person particularly. I came in, I, I got involved in radio air to begin with on the basis of jazz, 
because I fell in love with jazz when I was about 14 or 15 as well. So I missed all that Elvis Presley, uh, all of that three-chord trick merchants, as we call them, uh, when I first discovered Louis Armstrong and Big Spiderbeck and Benny Goodman and all of those people. But no, I wasn't the acceptable face of Radio Aaron, but I persisted and persisted in training. I remember that my, my, my third brother, who joined, who went to America and was in Korea for the, with the American Army, and then came out and got into television. And he used to send me from the stations he was working in, like Little Rock in, in Dallas and KMOX in St. Louis. He used to send me the news bulletins as they went out on those stations. And I used to sit for hours and hours in a little back room in our house in South Circle Road with a tape recorder. A big, big, when I look at your beautiful piece of equipment here now, when I remember the huge tape recorders we had, reel-to-reel Philips, and the quality so bad. But anyway, I used to sit for hours and hours reading these things over and over again as I imagined myself reading them on television in America. And they were about people I didn't know, and they were about places I'd never heard of, but nonetheless, they were the official news bulletins as broadcast on the stations, and I used to do that, practice that over and over again, and listen to myself back, and I wasn't quite satisfied with the pace or the pronunciation or the emphasis or whatever, and I would do it again and again and again. And without knowing it in between my homework and school and so on, I was just training myself to do what I was going to do. And that was it. And then eventually I managed to get into Radio Aaron through a very nice man who was the the assistant music director who decided that after a long, long absence at this time we had a bit of jazz on Radio Aaron and that's how I started in. And I got a jazz program of 15 minutes on a Monday night of such small beginnings and I started to play jazz to a very, very small, very, very small but niche audience. Right. And that's how I started. So from that, and of course, when you say 15 minutes, at that time, many of the programs on Radio Aaron were sponsored programs, 15 minutes sponsored. Yes, and a whole load of people who would never have got inside the doors of the Radio Aaron station as such because they weren't suitable. Dozens and dozens of those got their early start on sponsored radio because you're quite right, they were 15 minutes in duration. They were advertising all kinds of products. They were mostly handled by advertising agencies. Uh, who produced the programs and got them ready and all of that. And a lot of people got their start comparing those, com- those commercial programs and reading commercials on them. And, and they otherwise would never have gotten radio and they went on to do good things. And then I ended up at some stage having tried insurance and I was very good at insurance and was very fond of insurance. Having tried that and various other things, I ended up then myself looking after the radio production department of one of the bigger agencies in in Dublin called Wilson Young. And at one stage, we we probably had about 12 sponsored radio programs on Radio N at the same time. And I was responsible not for introducing them all, but for producing them all and scripting them and getting out the music and whatever else had to be done with them. And I was was disc man for many of them. Mm -hmm. In other words, I was the fellow who played the record, but... People like Joel Inane and Cecil Barron and Ronnie Walsh did the announcement. And of course, that in itself would have forced you to have a sensitivity to what your client's expectation was and what the particular audience might be looking for for those individual slots. And the diversity of 12 would have been a very diverse discipline to yes, develop. Although I must say, we didn't, we didn't do an awful lot of scientific inquiry. We, we knew there was a vast listenership to Radio Aaron because there was no other station to listen to. And we knew that the prime times, uh, and they are still the prime times, early morning, 8 o'clock, 
seven, now seven o'clock because Ireland, Ireland is rising earlier in the day than heretofore. Seven o'clock to about um, nine thirty ten, and then again at lunchtime, and then again in the in the late evening. And they were the spots to go for. But we didn't have any great scientific idea of who was listening to what, apart from numbers. Well, you'll be pleased to know that this is hitting the airwaves at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. There you are. The prime time, yes. as, as my listenership tends to prepare to go to church. Quite, quite. That's not a bad time at all. <laughs> not a bad time. Not a bad time. So as radio evolved in Ireland and your, your career developed, you moved from just the jazz program hmm. and evolved into talk radio. Into sponsored radio. I was doing a lot of that. And then I made the breakthrough as a newsreader in the radio and proper as distinct from the semi-outsiders to do with sponsored radio. And once I got in, I would have to say that these people who are not my kind of people were extraordinarily good and generous to me because I ended up doing almost everything. And I was reading the news, I was doing presentation, I was doing sponsored programs at the same time, I was doing programs in the Irish language, I was introducing the, the National Symphony Orchestra and the Concert Orchestra. Whatever came up, I did. And I was always available, and I was always reasonably clean in my habits, and I didn't drink or smoke, which was a huge advantage in the early days of radio, because the drink culture in Radio M, as a, as a, a radio station, was simply appalling, looking back on it. And there were many, many people far, far better than I would ever be, with far, far better voices and far, far more talent, and far m many other things going for them, who ruined their lives through drink. And it was the culture of the time, and gradually they got worse and worse, until they were unusable and unemployable. But I didn't drink at all at that stage, and as I say, I was, I was punctual, and I was good and, and adequate. And so they tended to use, civil servants tend to make life easier for themselves, mm -hmm. because it was a civil service outfit, it was mm -hmm. a civil service place. Mm -hmm. And so they tended to want to go home at five o'clock and leave somebody else who could be depended on, mm -hmm. and I could be depended on. Mm -hmm. So that's the secret of success, persistence and sobriety. <laughs> there's a there's a, an amazing new finding for you. I, I wouldn't quite say a new finding, but I do agree. <laughs> so when you evolved into the newer style, particularly talk radio, where you had the morning slot, and uh, that the telephone became more a part of Irish life, because I remember before I emigrated, uh, we applied for our first phone and we actually sold the house before it was delivered so we couldn't participate in phone-ins. That changed everything as well because well, it allowed I, people to communicate. Well, I remember when we lived on the South Circular Road when I was a boy, we applied for a telephone and at that time there was a five-year waiting list. And then my father, who worked in Guinnesses, happened to find a fellow who knew a fellow whose third cousin was a friend of another fellow. And I suspect some money changed hands, like two or three quid at the time. And suddenly we weren't on a five-year waiting list, we were only on a two-year waiting list. I don't think there was any waiting list at all. I, thought it, I think it depended on when the cable was put under the, under the manholes and so on. And eventually the incredibly exciting day dawned when we got a phone, when we got the phone for the first time, our very own phone in our very own home, because up to that we walked roughly a quarter of a mile up the South Circular Road to the public phone box with coins in hand to phone whoever we had to phone. And especially when my brother was in Korea mm -hmm. and when my other brother was in Canada, 
and, and people were away, especially for Christmas, you had to book your phone call two months in advance and then queue for perhaps an hour or two hours outside the public phone box, the only one available, to get the phone call through. And this is why it's astounding now to think that we have our mobile phones and we can call anybody anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the immediacy of it. it it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an extraordinary change. So now you had the ability of the listener to communicate with you directly while you're broadcasting. That would have opened a whole new world. Well, I tell you that we were the, I was, Gay Byrne was the very first one to take live telephone calls on the air. And it happened on the night that the men landed on the moon. And in, in pursuing that wonderful uh, evening, Radioern stayed on the air through the night for the first time, a major, major decision and a major breakthrough, because people all over the country, like all over the world, were listening to radio while they were waiting for the actual moment on television, and the, the, the boys hit the dust. And so we stayed on the air right through the night, and for the very first time, and against huge opposition from our engineering people, oddly enough, not our program people, our engineering people, we took the, the, the magnificent risk of taking phone calls live on the air from people. And so they phoned in and asked for requests, music requests, while they wallpapered the dining room or they painted the ceiling or they repaired this or that, waiting for the magic moment on the moon. And that was a major breakthrough then. But it was... The, there were people in Radio Ireland who resisted that most vociferously because they said, oh, people could use bad language on the phone and, 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 and they, could be, they, they, they could be sued for libel and slander and all of those things. And it's remarkable to me, down through all the years since, that there have been very few people to take advantage of the situation mm -hmm. on the phone. They know, they know what the rules are. They instinctively know. So there have been very few examples of people doing that. As that type of radio has evolved, people have shared the most intimate and painful aspects of their life with the nation because they felt comfortable in picking up the phone and phoning you at the other end. Well, we carried on the, the live phone thing onto the Gayborn show, which was two hours, as you know, five days a week, from nine until eleven every morning, and I did that for whatever it was, 37, 38 years. And yes, you're quite right, people would phone and talk about their, the intimate details of their life, and I'm convinced it was because they were on their own telephone, in their own little dining room, or their own little hallway, or their own little kitchen, and they felt comfortable and at home with that. And they were talking to somebody they knew very well, i.e. Gabriel or Marion Finucane, or now it is, it's, it's uh, Joe Duffy does it on Liveline. And that's a program completely based on phone calls. Mm -hmm. That's a totally phone-in program. And so uh, the format works extremely well. And it worked very well from the, really from the very beginning. It brought, it brought a greater immediacy, of course, to radio and access to people to air their views and opinions, which were not always worth hearing, but nonetheless it gave them the freedom to do it. And, and it's always great fun. And it's a cheap form of radio. True, but it, it also requires as you displayed over the years, a tremendous skill set to be able to guide what is not a trained communicator being the person on the phone through what can be a very emotionally charged story mm. that they want to tell. Mm. Because it can go awry very quickly. Well, it can, but once you're doing it and once it's live on the air and once there is no delay, 
you simply learn to cope with anything that looks like going awry and, and I think I think listeners get used to it and they know that this is not going right and you can always cut it off of course you can always have a, a, a save, your, save your heart button um, and so on but generally speaking I think it's a very good good piece of radio I think it's probably overdone at the moment mm-hmm. if anything mm-hmm. but it makes all of the stations now know I, I, I'm just discovering again today my association with the Road Safety Authority and we made some announcements yesterday and I realised this morning I was doing three or four telephone calls to different radio stations now we have a plethora of radio stations as you know and you suddenly realise that they're, they're all listening to each other mm-hmm. I presume this happens where you are as well they all listen to each other to see what each, each other is doing and as soon as they hear you on one station they're back on to you to try and do the same thing so as not to be scooped by anybody or, or whatever on, on a, a reasonably important announcement and, and that's, that's the way radio has blossomed. So the telephone is in constant use now. And I think radio would, would shrivel and die probably if the phone wasn't there. With that medium also, where you have had and received phone calls, was there an occasion where you were literally nearly thrown out of your chair with what somebody chose to share with you? No. Not that, but I was very often overcome with emotion by somebody's story. I was very often overcome with the way people told the most tragic, tragic details of their family and so on. And I sympathized with them so much, and, and the details, the details of the thing were so tragic that you would, uh, you would sympathize with them and you would be caught up in it and so on. But I think that's part of the deal, and then the other part of the deal is when people are funny, when people say things and do funny things and so on, that's great fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to uh, take a little break as I want to talk to you about television. But in taking the break, is there a piece of music that you might like that the listeners hear? Well, since we've spoken about the early days of jazz and so on, I think anything at all by either Louis or Big Spiderbeck. Have you ever heard of Big Spiderbeck? I can't say I have. You can't L- say Louis, that. I certainly <laughs> have. Louis, you have. All and, right. And well. we'll play Louis Arms. We'll Louis, Louis, Louis will do fine. Anything Excellent. by Louis. Yeah. And we're chatting with Gabe Now it goes black bottom. A new rhythm. Gun and the folks say, 
Also made the transition from radio over to television, a very very different medium. That came about purely by the random nature of life is amazing. And there was a man in Radio Erin who was in charge of sponsored programs, oddly enough. And he mentioned to me one day that there was a place called Granada Television, just starting in Manchester in England, at the very very start of commercial television in Britain. And so I somehow rang there and got the name of a man called Tim Hewitt who was Australian and he'd been brought in like everybody else because he'd done uh, television in Australia and he was helping this new fledgling Granada television network in Manchester and I called him and said that I was a broadcaster in Dublin and I would like to audition for some news reading or whatever he had in mind and would he consider me please and I then plagued that man's life I was like a limpet and with our telephone in the South Sector Road, our precious phone, I think I called him every week, week after week after week. Same thing, Gabe Byrne, Dublin, da 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 and I Dublin, and all that sort of thing. And eventually, I think, out of desperation, I wore him down to the point where he said, right, there's a possibility of maybe a, a, a vacancy occurring for newsreaders. I tell you what I'll do, I'll, I'll pay your fare to Manchester next Tuesday or whenever. Come over here and we'll have a look at you and so on. And so I went. And I read the news just in a dead studio at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And he immediately said, could you do that again for me? So I read the news again right from top to bottom. Now what he didn't know of course was that I'd been training myself to do this as well in the little back room in South Sector Road, not having a very clear idea of what I was doing. I read the news twice for him on that day and he said to me, are you going back tonight? And I said yes and he said, okay, I'll tell you what, stay over because uh, I want you to do the news at 5 o'clock and I want you to do the, the late news then at 10.30. So I stayed over and did the live news live on the air, which was my first television um, experience and I did the late news that night. And he sent me back home and said, I'll be in touch. And he rang me then about two or three weeks later and said, we can do a deal with you. We're, they were a five-day week company, Monday to, to Friday. Uh, the other company did Saturday and Sunday. That was the arrangement at that time in the early days of commercial television. And, and so I joined Granada. And then shortly after that, the most amazing thing happened. They had a daily program called People and Places. It's the same as every television station in the world has something similar which covered local happenings and, and general news for 45 minutes in the evening from 6.30. And the guy who was sub-presenter of that decided to emigrate and, and go back to Germany. And they needed somebody for that, so I got that as well. So I was in Granada Monday to Friday 
for something like three and a half years doing people and places mm-hmm. and tea time and then reading the late news as well. And that was a wonderful introduction to television and they treated me extremely well. And I was very happy and very contented there. And I was coming back at the same time. Television had started in Ireland in 1962 and the same year the Late Late Show started. And I started doing that because at the very beginning, I suppose, the theory was that in the land of the, of the, of the blind, the one-eyed band is king. And I was one of the few people who had any flying hours at all in television. Mm-hmm. And so I was the one to pick to do this live television show, and that was the start of that. And, of course, that live television show was, it, all, it started on the late late. That's right. Which and went on, I did, I did it for best part of, what was it, 38 years or something like that. That also was... Um, something very different because television, live television, was live television mm. as distinct from recorded television in front of an audience and again a high risk factor in many cases. Some of the topics that you were willing to bring to the screen created and, and caused controversy and put you at the, um, at the point, at the edge, end of the sword of many for a variety of reasons and yet what you did was stimulate debate at a level that had never been done before. Not that you got much thanks for it then. It, it, this is all in retrospective uh, consideration that, that people now say that the Late Late Show had a huge sociological um, effect on the affairs of Ireland, on our culture and on our, our attitudes and so on. And I suppose it did, but I think television in general, from, from the very beginning, people don't understand now that almost everything that happened on television caused controversy and contention and argument, because it's impossible to describe to young people now the extent to which people treat it so seriously and with such urgency and importance, anything that happened on television. And this show called The Late Late Show was on, on a, a Saturday night to begin with and then shifted to Friday night. And it, had a, it was live on the air, as distinct from recorded and then edited. And so anything that happened on it, happened on it. Bad, good and indifferent. And we had a studio audience <clears throat> and people felt free to say what they liked. And, and, and people around the country, especially those who up to then had had great influence, I'm talking about the hierarchy and the clergy and the county councillors and the politicians and the local dignitaries and so on, who up to then had great influence on Irish life at a local level, they saw, like St. Paul, through a glass darkly, that this thing was going to undermine their authority and their grip on the nation and so on, and they, and they didn't like it. And so for the first 10 or 15 years of Irish television, there was a concerted effort to get control of it, to gain control of it and hold control of it, which was very difficult because they had gone, they'd made the mistake of appointing a, an independent authority, and those people took their independence very seriously, and they have had appointed an administration and so on. And those people took their situation very seriously. And so gradually we won the freedom to talk about what we wanted to talk about. And the Late Show was part of that, but I don't think it was the leading part. People tend to say it was the leading part, but I think there were all sorts of other influences at the same time. Did you ever find a specific um, effort at a gag? Well, it was too late to try to gag me because the show was live. <laughs> and before they thought of gagging it, we had already done it. So it was very difficult to do that. I can't say at, at any stage there was interference. There were huge complaints and monster threats. And there was a lot of trepidation about things. But you're talking about a time when 
there was a night when we discussed the possibility of divorce being legalized in Ireland. Now remember what I'm saying. We were talking about the possibility of divorce being legalized in Ireland. And people walked out of the studio and protested that. Because they couldn't bear to hear the matter even discussed. Mm -hmm. Now you look back on that and say, what was going on and what was all that about? And, and, and various other highly contentious issues. The Irish language, of course. The North of Ireland, of course. Supermarkets when they first came in. Shopping malls. All of these things were major, major matters of contention. But there are always some things which are matters of contention in a country at any given time. As we speak now, the Lisbon referendum and the whole economic crunch in which we find ourselves worldwide uh, in, and especially in this country, these are all bones of contention at the moment and, and very con controversial uh, subjects. And if I were still in the, on the Late Late Show, I'd be, as I said to somebody this morning, I'd be like a ferret in there covering all of those issues. Now, I know there were one or two occasions I can even recall them from before I emigrated where you had uh, one or two obstreperous. I think you had, uh, there was one guest at one stage was rather imbibed that you had different... There were many people rather imbibed, <laughs> I can tell you that. But got somewhat obnoxious. Um, the psychologist or... Uh, Psychiatrist. From, from yeah. Yes. Or D. Lang, who was a very nice man, but he just uh, was too fond of the drink, and, and we put, a, we put a, 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 a protector on him, who was supposed to stick to him like a, like a, a limpet. And unfortunately, two of his pals escaped with him, mm -hmm. and, and he turned up extremely drunk. And Professor Ivor Brown, who was his colleague here in, in, in Ireland, who was an extremely famous psychiatrist, he tried to take care of him and, and, and feed him coffee. It's been my experience through my life that the only result of giving a drunk coffee is that you, you end up with a rather more alert drunk. I don't think the coffee cures it at all. But anyway, we put him on and he was a rather, it was an, an unfortunate occasion. And we had done our best to keep him off as long as possible and all of those sort of things. But you get blamed then for, for putting him on and then you'd be blamed if you didn't put That's him right. on and, and all of So you, you, you just write over these things. It's just... In the years, and you would have, I don't know how many shows you would have put out over the years or how many guests you would have, who would you put in the, uh, out there as somebody that's... Impossible to say. It's just impossible to pick anybody. I, I, only, I only know that I, on various occasions, on, indeed on many, many occasions, you knew that you had captured the attention of your viewers because 200 people in the studio which was our studio audience compliment that silence descended upon them and there wasn't a cough or a sniffle or a snuffle or a movement or anything else out of them and you knew that the person you were interviewing has caught their, had caught their imagination to the extent that they were totally and completely riveted on what they had to say we also found that we, of course, love the well-known personalities and celebrities and film stars and those people when they came away because audiences are always interested, no matter what you say, in those sort of people. But we found again and again on The Late Late Show that ordinary people, as you described them, to whom something extraordinary had happened, whether it was in a sinking ship or in a burning aeroplane or in a burning house or whatever. Something extraordinary had happened. And who had the capacity to tell their story. These were the people who always gripped the imagination of the public. And you could feel that palpable concentration of attention on the person. And you knew that if you had them in the studio to that extent, then you certainly had them at home to that extent. And the other wonderful feeling was when there was somebody extremely funny, you, 
think of various people, but you 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 realize that your audience in the studio were in helpless, uncontainable hysterics of laughter, and so was I. And you knew then that it, it, you had the audience at home in, in exactly the same frame of mind. And th- those two extremes, both of those two extremes were, were very rewarding, always very rewarding. In what was a very public career, you managed to maintain a very private life. And while certain aspects of your life were known that you, you had uh, holiday home in Donegal and you enjoyed that and you enjoy your Harleys, Outside of those little few snippets, people know very little about you. Was it difficult to maintain that? No, I don't think people... I, I think people accepted me because they knew me so well and they knew that I lived in Hoth and I left Montrose to go to Hoth every day when I finished work and so on, usually late at night. And, and they're, they're, not all that, they're not all that curious, you know. And they knew that I had two daughters... And, and I had the same wife for the last 45 years. And we've now moved from Hope back into, into Dublin, strangely enough, having lived in, in Hope and worked in Montrose for 40 years. Now that I've retired, we've moved close to Montrose. But my, my excuse is that Hope kept me alive all those years. It actually saved my life, and I loved living in Hope, and I still love Hope and everything about it, and the sea and the walks and so on. But anyway, circumstances change in life, and, and the house is no longer relevant, and the, the garden, which was once a pleasure, becomes a burden, mm-hmm. and all of those things change, and, and the girls are married and moved away now, and all of that sort of thing. So um, they, they didn't interfere very much with my privacy. You know, there wasn't an awful lot of scandal. I'm a very dull person, you know, and a very routine person, and I like being alone, and I don't have a, a big yacht, and I don't run a racehorse, and I don't have spare women, and I don't drive fast cars. My Harley, as you know, I, I was presented to me by you two on my final Late Late Show. And, and, and I gave that for charity with the Children's Hospital and it's now on display in uh, Harry Crosby's Vicar Street in, in Thomas Street. And I bought myself a Honda Deauville, which is a nice for anybody who knows motorbikes. It's a nice, reasonably conservative touring bike. Uh, and I still ride, and I ride my push bike, and I drive my car, and I walk, and that's about what I do. And we go to theatre a lot, and we read a lot, and we listen to music a lot. And we attend functions a lot, and we're enjoying our visit to Tralee, even now as you're speaking to me, and, and that's about it. When you talk about reading, I do have to draw to, uh, for the last number of Christmases, and every Christmas it has been a tradition since I started broadcasting, to play uh, your reading of John Dee's, the, either the turkey or, or one, one of the John Dee's that I go to your recording of. Do you mean the whiskey? Uh, there's the whiskey, the whiskey. And, and there's he has party hats as well. Uh, yes, that's yes, that's on, a, on an album. If I had the redoing of that album, I would slow the whole thing down. I'm surprised whenever I hear an excerpt from it now. <clears throat> I but, the, the good thing, but the good thing about the speed you do with yeah. that is that from a radio perspective, it is a nice time to it it's in. Yes, it is in. That's all of the morning. Yeah. But that is, it has yeah. been a tradition yeah. where we've been, good. we've been playing that. Good. And it is my intention to yeah. continue doing good. so. Uh, since you retired also from broadcasting, you got involved in the road safety. Uh, association just conference. before you leave that there's another beautiful one that he wrote called Dear Santa yes. it's a letter to yes, Santa we've, I've played that have you played that yes, that's, that's particularly one. suitable for, for Christmas that's I think. right yes. and whenever I'm on the air at Christmas I do that as well yes 
because it, 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 it never wears out. No, it doesn't. Now, anyway, the Road Safety Authority, yes, uh, the, the minister at the time, Martin Cullen, was forming this new organisation to do something in answer to the outrage expressed by the Irish people about the carnage on our roads, particularly in relation to young people. And so he was forming a completely new organisation called the Road Safety Authority and asked me to become chairman. And both I and the other members of the board did so for one reason and one reason only, and that is that we thought we could make a contribution to the general thing of road safety. And we're doing that. We are making slow progress insofar as, as I speak to you now, we are 31 fewer deaths this year on the roads of Ireland than at the same time last year, which sounds a lot, but I just get impatient at that kind of thing. I think we should be doing a lot better. But we have to deal with civil servants, and we were only unable to do so much ourselves, and it's a slow, gradual process because we are making up for what I reckon is 30 years of neglect in this entire area in this country. And you cannot, cannot, cannot undo 30 years of neglect and incompetence in a week or a month or a year. So it will take me a little longer, it will take us a little longer to do something about it. Uh, but we will make inroads into it, and we're attacking the problem under all kinds of different headings, and eventually we will make it difference. And of course you've had the opportunity now to go back to where you started to some degree, as I understand, on you have a Sunday afternoon show. Um, yes, well, I have. A, I, have I still. I, I never want to be on five days a week again. I don't want to do late, late shows again. I don't want to be in the forefront again. I did that for 40 years, and that's enough for anybody. But but I'm still. I still retain my allegiance to RTE, mm -hmm. and in in pursuance of that, I just do a little program on Sunday afternoon on Lyric FM, which is a lot of jazz and big band stuff, but not not confined to that. And I talk about anything I, that comes into my head. There is no script, and we just do it on Sunday afternoon, which suits me fine during the winter months. And then I do bits and pieces of television work. I did. Um, I brought Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to RTE, and we had that for a couple of years. It's now gone. And I do an interview, a series of interviews. The last thing I did, and we're going to repeat it now, we did interviews with well-known people about their spiritual beliefs, mm -hmm. and we called it the meaning of life. Mm -hmm. And these people are all searching for what we're all searching for, which is the certainty and, and what happens and where we're all going and what we're all about. So we had a lovely selection of people like Jerry Adams and Maeve Binchy and Colin Farrell, Sinead O'Connor and uh, Neil Jordan and um, Ronan Keating. And they all gave it their time because they were very generous in their response uh, because they weren't selling anything. They weren't mm -hmm. selling a CD or a movie mm -hmm. or a, a book or anything else. And they had to think on their feet because there was no sort of prior arrangement about any questions. And so we got a whole range of, of responses about people and, and their spiritual life or lack of it as the case may be and their beliefs or lack of them as mm -hmm. the case may be and what they think about what this is all about or not as the case may be and we're doing another six or eight of those now in the near future so. Gay, if somebody did want to tune in to Lyric FM on the internet what time are you broadcasting? I'm broadcasting Irish time this year from 2 to 4 ok so that's just as we come off air at 9am on uh, Canadian so uh, when you finish up listening to me you can go on the internet and tune in to Lyric and catch well, it's amazing that we do get emails and we get texts, of course, from all over the country and all over the world. And I just find it astonishing, and we know they are listening, that there are people listening all over the world That's in the right. most extraordinary places. When you consider that when I first started in Radio Erin, there were large pockets of Ireland where they couldn't receive mm -hmm. us because there was a mountain in the way 
or the transmitter wasn't strong enough, or whatever. And now it totally, bef- totally befuddles me to think that in deepest, darkest Africa, they're listening to Lyric FM and Radio mm-hmm. 1 and Radio Ireland in general and so on. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's a good note for us to end. And I want to thank you indeed for spending time and sharing with the listener. Well, you're welcome, and thank you very much indeed for having me. And I send my best of kind regards to all of the people who might know who I am in and around your area and listening to your lovely radio program. John D. Sheridan's writings have wit and style and are delightfully written. It's only when you read them aloud that you'll appreciate his sheer sense of fun. But better than that, he writes for all of us and about all of us. And he never hurts because he has so much sympathy and compassion. So here's a salute then to a fine man of letters. On a bright Sunday afternoon recently, when I was walking on the outskirts of the city, a very pleasant little lady, who was acting as spokeswoman for two still smaller ladies, asked me, with a mixture of respect and dignity, if I could tell her the right time. But the look on her face showed that she had no doubts at all on the matter. She knew that I could tell her the right time. I may feel young and think that I look young, but the young themselves are not deceived. They have given me institutional status. I am bracketed now with Trinity College and the Custom House and all other grey and venerable foundations. Incidentally, I've often wondered why so many of our public buildings should carry their clocks of all places on their foreheads, where they are of no use whatever to those who work within, just as my watch would be little help to me if I wore it face foremost on the front of my hat. And I have wondered also why, with so many wayside pulpits telling the time, no two of them should tell the same time. Can it be that the City Hall wants to have all the medical students late for lectures, that the University wants to produce chaos in the rates department, and that the Stock Exchange is bent on ending all punctuality in the National Library? Be that as it may, The point that matters is that with every city full of mechanical liars and the truth not to be found even on church steeples, it is right and proper that respectable burghers should carry the gospel in their waistcoat pockets or strapped to their wrists and be ready to preach it on demand. But this is not the reason why young people are forever asking the right time, for young people are not interested in the sort of truth that we oldsters carry about with us They listen to the gospel and ask to have it preached to them, but they look at the preachers as false prophets. They regard time as a sort of crooked adult arithmetic that works always to their own disadvantage, that puts an eternity between birthdays, makes school hours unbearably long, and stops the day's fun when it is at its brightest and best. And the little lady who stopped me so primly the other evening didn't want to know the time. She wanted something more magical than information. She wanted power. She wanted to try out an open sesame with me as the slave of the lamp. She wanted to prove a fairy story and test a recipe, and she did. She forced a stranger to a halt in his tracks. She made a grown-up stand and deliver. I had no defense against her ancient formula. I opened my overcoat, I opened my undercoat, I opened my watch, and I opened my mouth. And all at the behest of a damsel not much taller than a card table. You may think that in catching me she hadn't made much of a catch, but it might just as easily have been the Lord Mayor, 
or the President of the High Court. She didn't ask me for the time. She asked me for the right time, as if to pretend that other people walking on the rim of the city that bright evening might be content with the wrong time, that certain giddy and irresponsible souls might be fobbed off with the approximate time, but that important people like herself and myself were interested only in the right time. Her attitude hinted at enterprises of great moment that might go awry if she were a couple of seconds out, one way or another. She wanted the right time or nothing. She wanted to know the right time, and I was obviously the right man to tell her. It was plain that she regarded me as a solid man in a world of featherheads. I got the impression that dozens of other men had told her the wrong time, and that she regarded me as her only hope. But in answering her, I lied as blatantly as the highest cock in the city. For I hadn't got the right time, and I'll never have it again. The right time is not rationed in hours and minutes, not prisoned in jeweled movements. It isn't that kind of time at all. The right time begins with your first doll or your first circus, and it lasts through the whole eternity of youth. It doesn't end like a committee meeting or a lecture. It fades like a sunset. Little by little, it becomes blurred and dim, and then you don't see it any longer. You never see it again, but once in a while you think that you do. It haunts you like a mirage, especially on bright evenings when the pinpoint buds are swelling. But the vision fades almost as soon as it comes, and you know then that you've no time left but the kind that ticks respectably in best pockets, the time that measures worries and working days and the interest on overdrafts. I could have said all of this to the little lady who wouldn't have understood any of it. Gather ye rosebuds is addressed to young people, but no one understands it until he's old enough to read it in the past tense. So I preached no sermons. I left priggishness to the wayside pulpits, to the clocks on town halls and bank lintels and church steeples, to the brass tongues that waken every fifteen minutes to remind us that old time is still a-flying. I simply consulted my half-hunter. It doesn't do just to look at it. You must pretend that you are having a conversation with it. I looked as wise and benevolent as I could, and I said, It is exactly twenty minutes to six. Twenty to six will satisfy adults, but children feel cheated if you give them anything less than a complete sentence. It's always well, too, to throw in exactly for good measure, although precisely is even better. The spokeswoman thanked me gravely, and then, turning to the other members of the deputation, she said, accusingly, Now! It was both an admonition and an exhortation. It meant, I told you so, and it meant fifty other things just as frightening. It hinted at the eternity that had passed since dinner time, and of mighty undertakings still to be carried out before their hair was set in curlers for the night. <laughs>